If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn them to Colossians chapter 1. As many of you know, we are going through the book of Colossians. This is our third lesson into the book. And the one I'm going to teach on today is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. That has me excited and incredibly nervous. Because <laughs> I want to do it justice, and I, I fear I'm not going to. But we'll ask the little Holy Spirit here for help here in a minute. The text today we're going to look at is Colossians 1. 15 to 23. We'll recap here in a little bit so we know where we're coming from and where we're headed to. But I'd like to pray one more time and ask for the Spirit's help this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that we can meet here as a body of Christ in your presence. We owe so much credit and glory to you for that because we are sinners by nature. Father, help us understand that today and help us understand how privileged we are to meet with you, to meet with your people, and to sit under your word. Guide my words today by your Holy Spirit. Let only let me only say what you want me to say and edify and grow your church for your own glory and for Christ's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does anyone know what the word hyperbole means? Anybody want to take a guess? You've heard that word, right? Hyperbole? Exaggeration. It does mean exaggeration. In fact, it means kind of outlandish, on-purpose exaggeration. Exaggeration that is used in order to embellish something. My sister's already laughing. She may have an idea of where we're headed here. Um, I'll give you a couple examples, okay? These are, these are ones I found online. Examples of hyperbole, okay? I could listen to that song on repeat forever. Hyperbole. I don't think that's meant to be taken literally. That would be a long time. Here's another one. My mom works her fingers to the bone. I don't think mom has actually worked her fingers to the bone. If she did, that's a ER trip. Here's another one, even even more grave. My mom is going to kill me. Right? I'm I'm so, I'm in such big trouble. My mom is going to kill me. Hopefully, that's not true either. Hyperbole. Another one. My dad knows everything about cars. Maybe that's true. My dad does not. Nor do I. Here's another one. I've seen this movie at least 80,000 times. Get a new hobby then. That's hyperbole. Old Mr. Johnson has been teaching here since the Stone Age. Hyperbole. I could smell pizza from a mile away. Anyone? <laughs> What's that? That's actual, right? Here's another one. That was the easiest question in the world. My dress shoes are killing me. Now they hurt, right? But they're not actually threatening your life. I hope not. Here's another one. I'll let you guys finish this one. I'm, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Anyone ever horse meat? That's hyperbole. And then the last one. Maybe you guys can finish this too. Maybe if you've heard this before from your parents. When I was a kid... We used to walk 15 miles to school. Uphill. Uphill. <laughs> That's right. Uphill both ways in the snow. Hyperbole. Purposeful exaggeration. Okay. What I'm going to do now, <laughs> I'm going to share with you a story from my life that actually happened, but I'm going to embellish it a little bit by using hyperbole. And I want to see if you guys can pick up on the hyperbole. If you ever speak to a walker and hear a story from walkers, we often use exaggeration and hyperbole. Um, so if you hear an entertaining story from one of us, 
take it down about five notches. And that's what actually happened. So I'm going to read you a story. This story actually happened, but it almost is fiction because of how much hyperbole I put into this. So just listen. See if you can pick up on the hyperbole. One time, like a thousand years ago, my siblings and I went to the mall on a snow day from school. It was like the coldest day in the history of time. But we were so bored at the thought of staying home. Seriously, the, board, the boredom from having to stay home would have, would have killed us. So we decided to go to the mall. My friend came to pick us up in his Jeep. It was good that he had four-wheel drive because the roads were more dangerous than anything ever. They were literally all ice. We probably shouldn't have gone because the tires on his Jeep were older than Methuselah. But since my sister insisted we go, and since if she doesn't get her own way, we would never hear the end of it. It's a joke. Maybe. So our friend picked us up. We almost killed ourselves in the driveway just getting into the Jeep. I was already more nervous than the mind's ability to comprehend it. So we started to drive to the mall. I was in the back of his Jeep with my brother and my sister's friend. It was so cramped back there that I thought I was going to hyperventilate. Plus, my sister's friend never stops talking, literally. So while we were driving to the mall, we hit the biggest patch of ice ever. It was bigger than Texas. My friend lost control of his Jeep because he's the worst driver ever. I mean, it was only ice. Ice isn't even dangerous at all. But the Jeep started slipping on the ice, and we started going sideways on the road. I was so incredibly scared. I saw my life flash before my eyes. No one has ever been more scared than I was that day. The Jeep kept sliding on the ice until we came to the median in the road. We were screaming so loud you could have heard us in space. The Jeep slid up the median until we came to rest on top of the median. We had only one tire on the road and the rest of the Jeep was balanced on the median. That part's true. I was so scared I literally jumped out of my skin. The Jeep came to rest on top of the median between two lanes of traffic. None of us breathed for 10 minutes straight. It was scarier than being in a hurricane. Even as I'm telling you this story, my hands are shaking uncontrollably. The police and ambulance finally came to rescue us. I felt, it felt like an eternity. They chained the Jeep down so it wouldn't fall as we climbed out. It was so scary, we were, we were all crying rivers. We barely all got out of the Jeep before it probably would have exploded or something. They put us in the ambulance to see if we were okay. They literally couldn't believe we were still alive. <laughs> they said that even though they were paramedics, this was the scariest thing they had ever witnessed. They also told us that we were incredibly brave for enduring this scene, like too brave for words. They finally got the Jeep off the median and we were able to take it home. As soon as my parents heard about what had happened, they ran to us and squeezed us tighter than an anaconda. My mom couldn't stop crying. She was the most scared anyone has ever been. The next day our story was in the newspaper. The reporters wrote that we were basically heroes because of how scary the scene was and how brave we acted. It was such an amazing day. Even today, when I tell this story, people literally gasp, and their jaws hit the floor. It was, to date, the most amazing thing that has ever happened to anyone in the history of time. Literally. Does anyone notice it? Did anybody notice my subtle hyperbole? Okay, what actually happened, you'll have to come find out, because it was kind of close, but not really. 
Anyways, I want to talk about Colossians 1, 15 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, let's go there and read this. What, I set this up today to, to tell you something, that what is going to be mentioned here in Colossians is not hyperbole. It's truth. Paul is going to use some very strong statements talking about our Lord Jesus. But every ounce of it is true, not hyperbole. So follow along as I read verses 15 to 23 of Colossians chapter 1. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you remember where Paul is coming from, he's telling the Colossians how he's praying for them. That's what we looked at last, the last two weeks. How Paul is praying for the church, which was a good church. If you remember, the Colossians had faith in Christ and love for all the saints, and that was known throughout the, throughout the nation, throughout the country there. So Paul is, is commending this church, and at the same time, he's praying for something staggering. And we looked at that last week. He's praying that, that they become worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We looked at that prayer request last week. And the last, the, thing, the last thing we mentioned last week was that he was motivating them to do or to pray such a way. And the first thing he did is verses 13 and 14, he talked about the Father's great gift to us by delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now what I think he wants to do today, this week, is motivate us by the love and the precious and the beauty and the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at today, Christ. We're going to set him before us as our subject. And that's really what Paul did. He set the Christ before us as the subject here. So he's not bringing this up randomly. He said in verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he is. And then he says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ. So the fact that he's just saying, he, in verse 15, should tell us he means Jesus. The, I looked up the word supreme. The, lesson, or the title for our lesson today is Supreme Love for the Supreme King. Some of your passages might say uh, preeminent. But I looked up the word supreme in the dictionary, and this is what it said. Superior to all others. Strongest, most important, and most powerful. And then number three, very great or intense extreme Christ. We're going to look at the supremacy of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And I want to suggest to you guys today that hopefully by the end here, if we do believe Jesus is supreme, we will walk in a way that's worthy of what Christ deserves. That's what I want to lay before you today. That Christ is supreme, that he is valuable, that he is precious, and motivate you to go higher and to greater. And as we mentioned last week, go to the summit of Christianity, which is fully pleasing to Christ. You have in your sheets there, I hope you have your sheets at least, what I want to do now is I want to pause a little bit and look at a few passages from Scripture that talk about the supremacy of the Lord. So you don't think this is the only passage that does such a thing. I put six on your, on your sheets there, and I want to look at them one by one. And I want you to notice the language. Okay, just notice the language of these six passages talking about Jesus. They're all kind of different, kind of varied. Uh, John 18, 4 to 6, this is what it says. This is a really cool passage too. This is Jesus in the garden about to be arrested and tried. It said, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Isn't that cool? Some of the commentators believe all he said was, I am. And this whole group of people falls to the ground. Now, don't you think if you're approaching someone to arrest them and they say a word that causes you to fall to the ground, that maybe that's a lot of power you shouldn't be dealing with? But they go on, they arrest Jesus, they try Jesus, and eventually they crucify Jesus. But that's in Scripture. That actually happened. I am he. And they all fell to the ground. The supremacy of Christ. In John 21, 25, it says this. <laughs> this is the way he wraps up the book of John. Maybe it's hyperbole, I don't know, but listen to what it says. Now, there also were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that awesome? That as much as I recorded of Jesus Christ and his works and his actions, that if all of them were recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the entire world to hold them. That's how supreme the Lord Jesus Christ is. In Psalm 2, it says it this way, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Supreme, coming wrath, in Christ you're safe. From the coming storm, take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Uh, Patrick read Hebrews 1, 3 to 4. I'll just read a portion of this again. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the part I really like there is where he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know what? I'm, I'm brave today. Are you guys brave with me today? I was going to show a video, and then I told Krista maybe it's not going to work because the sound might not be loud enough. But I think the video is worth it. Can we try that? I need to do two things. I need to get the video, and then I need to cast my screen. So bear with me here a little bit. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. So where are we 
in this place called the universe. Our moon is our nearest neighbor, one quarter of a million miles away. Our sun is 93 million miles away from the Earth. The solar system is flying through space at 134 miles per second, spinning as it goes. It is a part of a vast collection of stars and star systems. Scientists estimate as many as 200 billion stars are a part of this collection called the Milky Way Galaxy. Saturn, of the nine planets in our solar system, is over one billion miles away. It is 1,000 times the size of our Earth. Of the 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, six billion of these stars have planetary systems like ours. Every star we can see in the night sky lies within the realm of our own galaxy. Voyager 1 is now the most distant human-made object in space. It was launched in 1977, traveling at a speed of 40,000 miles per hour. It is just now arriving at the edge of our solar system. The sun there is only one five-thousandth as bright as here on Earth, so it is extremely cold, and there is very little solar energy to provide electrical power. The fact that the spacecraft is still returning data is a remarkable surprise to our scientific community. Our solar system, containing the sun and the nine orbiting planets, orbits the center of the Milky Way galaxy on just one of its outer spiraling arms. Our Milky Way galaxy, the home to our solar system, is just one of over 125 billion galaxies that make up the visible universe. Andromeda is the next closest galaxy. It is 10 million, million, million miles away from the Earth. Traveling at the speed of light, it would take 2 million years to reach Andromeda. Andromeda and the Milky Way form a small cluster of galaxies called the local group. Beyond the local group, are even greater clusters of galaxies. Man has no knowledge whatever of what lies beyond this distance. From Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. From Colossians chapter 1, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How big is God? The Bible declares that the endless eternal universe is just one God's creations. As incomprehensible as that is for our minds to conceive, what may be even more unimaginable is that in the vastness of all that he has made, he loves you. And through Jesus Christ, his son, the God of the universe, extends his hand and his love to you. Okay, thank you.
All right. I want to. Sh I wanted to share that with you for one thing. It says in Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right now, as, as our globe is spinning through space and everything you just saw is happening, and for, for what we understand, things just happen because they happen, right? They just consist because they consist. That's kind of how we're trained to know. It's like things just continue. That's not what Hebrews says. Jesus holds it together. Not by strength, by his word. And they obey. And I think that's an incredible amount of power and supremacy. Was that worth it? Debatable, right? That was a good video, I thought. Let's go to the next one, Revelation 19. Um, this is a little bit more uh, sobering. It says, Then I saw, in, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is, by which he is called, is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And finally, from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. Are you starting to get the idea of what Colossians is bringing out this morning, the supremacy of Christ. What was the definition again? Superior to all others, strongest, most important, most powerful, and very great or intense, extreme. What I want to do now for the last remaining few moments we got here is, is walk our way through Colossians 1, 15 to 23. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to restate the little bullet points here as phrases and talk about what that means. The first thing he says is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Which really means he's God. Christ embodies or is the visual picture of God's holiness, character, and will. So to know Jesus is to know God. The God who created all of that with a word. Jesus embodies it. We need that so we can understand God. Otherwise he's too vast for us. Jesus came to this earth to embody and to give us a visual picture. Maybe not all a picture, of course, but a visual picture of who God is. So he's God. And this, I mean, this would even make sense with our, you know, my family and maybe your family too. If you really wanted to know my father, you could do two things. You could talk to my father, sit down and have coffee with him, and you would get to know my dad pretty well. You'd have to take a few times to, to do that. But another way to know my father is to sit down with his three children and talk to them about my father, or about themselves. And you would understand about my father by doing that. You would understand what he likes, what he dislikes, what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are, how he speaks, his mannerisms, all kinds of things. So when you look to Jesus Christ, you see God. You know God. And we have Jesus' life recorded for us in Scripture, which means we have God recorded for us in Scripture. What he likes what his character is, 
what his holiness is, what his love is. It's all there before us. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, but he's also God. He is also God. It says he's next, the firstborn of all creation, which means he's first. So this is how it took place. <laughs> Somewhere in time, God beget, what's the, the, the past tense of that? He beget his son, begot his son, Jesus Christ, and he did that before he created anything. So before earth and heaven existed, Jesus was the Son of God. Which means he's the firstborn of all creation. Nothing happened until Jesus was God's Son. Nothing. Nothing we know, nothing we see, nothing we experience happened before Jesus was God's Son. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. That's important, that Jesus is first. If you read there in uh, uh, Revelations 19, it goes on to say that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning, and he's also the end. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He wasn't, it doesn't mean Jesus on earth was the firstborn. We know that's not true. But Jesus was God's son in eternity before Adam and Eve and earth and heaven were created. So he's first. He's God, and he's first. The next thing it tells us, which we kind of saw in the video there, is he's the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator. So he's first, but he also created everything you and I know in heaven and on earth. Visible, which we can see with our eyes, and invisible, which we don't even know is out there. Whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities. And that means Jesus is all-powerful. He's almighty. Jesus has endless power. If he can speak into existence, everything you and I have known and experienced. Think about the power that resides in him. It didn't take effort. It wasn't a sweaty experience. Jesus spoke it, and it existed. Everything that is good is to his credit. The next thing it says is not only was he the creator, he was the purpose for the creation. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. I put another sheet in your bulletin there that we're not going to have time to look over. But what I did on that other sheet, which hopefully you guys will have time to look at, is I put other things that are important to us, that, if you will, are supreme to us in our lives, and I put those things next to Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the reason we were created. And sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that we were created not only by Jesus, but for Jesus. And maybe by looking at those things, um, you could start to understand how important Christ is versus what we consider very important things. And again, my purpose here is to exalt him, not knock down or make us feel bad. But Jesus is the purpose, not just the creator. And I find that's very awesome. He's the reason you exist. He's the reason I exist. He's the reason you got up this morning. He's the reason you have breath in your lungs. He's the reason you have any talents or abilities or any family. Jesus is the purpose for all of it. It goes on to say that Jesus is before all things, which kind of goes along with he is first. But Jesus is everything's genesis. Jesus. Everything that exists came from and started with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In John chapter 8, verse 58, speaking of Abraham, Jesus said this phrase, which I think is awesome too. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. Before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I've always existed. I've always been the first. I've always been the preeminent. So you look to Abraham and think he's the best. But before Abraham was, I am. Powerful, isn't it? He's the beginning. Space and time did not exist before Jesus. He's the sustainer of all things. Okay, we looked at that from Hebrews, and that says it in Colossians too. He's the sustainer of all things. So everything consists and exists and keeps going because Jesus says so. And as soon as Jesus says otherwise, it stops. Do you remember all those passages in uh, Matthew and Mark where there were storms upon the water, right? And the disciples, I remember this one time, they were in the, the disciples were in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus is asleep. He's tired from ministry, so he's asleep. But there's a really bad storm upon the water. And the waves are crashing into the boat. It's a really scary scene. And so the disciples go to Jesus and wake him up and say, Jesus, don't you care? We're, we're going to perish and Jesus wakes up, rebukes their faith, and calms the wind and the waves in an instant. And they obey him. And the disciples, already who know who Christ is, but they may not know his supremacy, they marvel and they go, wow, the winds and the waves obey Jesus. And you've got to picture this like case five hurricane to like an eerily calm after Jesus gives it an order. Jesus is a sustainer of all things. Everything you are and everything you continue to do is a credit to Christ. Everything. If you can breathe, if you can move, if you can think, if you can love, it's all a credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the authority. It also says this, he's the head of the body, the church. Well, you guys just hired me recently to be your pastor. But you know what's more interesting? I'm not your real pastor. <laughs> because there's someone who gives me orders. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true pastor of the church. The only body that will exist forever. My body won't and your body won't. But the church will. Jesus is in charge of that body. So although I'm your pastor now and I teach you and guide you and shepherd you, Jesus teaches me, guides me, and shepherds me. And I only say what he tells me to say, which means he's your true pastor. He is. And he's mine as well. He's the head of the church. Uh, when Jesus was baptized, do you remember that? He was baptized by John the Baptist, and the dove came down, and, and a voice came from heaven, and God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He has all authority. It happened again during the transfiguration Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain to see Jesus transfigured. And like Moses and Elijah show up to it. It's a really cool thing. It's like, wow, look at all these great men of God. And Peter's like, I got a great idea. Let's set up three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And all kind of hang out together, you know? Three tents for three great guys. And then the voice comes from heaven again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's better than Moses. He's better than Elijah. He has all authority. Jesus is the pastor, the head of the church, the head of all of us, whether we like it or not. He also says in Colossians, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
Think about that phrase for a little bit. The firstborn from the dead. Well, obviously he's meaning he's the first one who resurrected himself from the dead. So the first one who died and the first one who didn't stay dead. Now, not in, the, not in the concept of time. We understand that. Lazarus was raised from the dead. There was at least one girl who was raised from the dead that Jesus did, uh, raised him from the dead. But Jesus was the author of the resurrection, and Jesus is the only one who raised himself from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead, which means he's the life. And even death takes orders from Jesus. Even death. So death is stalking all of us, right? Everyone, everyone's scared of death. Nobody wants to talk about death. And yet Jesus has control and his head over death. And you and I know that when we die, that's not the end, is it? As our Lord Jesus Christ raised, we too will raise to newness of life. All credit to Christ. He's the life. Jesus, you could say it this way, Jesus started the resurrection trend, a fad. The one thing we're all waiting for is to be resurrected and be with our Father. Jesus is the beginning of that and the sustainer of that. And then he uses this word, which my translation says, he's preeminent. He's preeminent, which means he's supreme. Really, the words we've talked about already, he's the best, he's the first, he's the strongest, he's the greatest, he's supreme, which really means he's unrivaled. He's unrivaled. There is no rival for Jesus Christ. And it also means this. No hyperbole exists in reference to Jesus. Because of this, language was created for Jesus and by Jesus. So when speaking of Jesus in the correct way, there is no embellishment high enough to talk about him. He's unrivaled. There is no real parallel for Jesus Christ. So anything you try to, to represent Jesus with falls horribly short. Horribly short. And many try. But he's unrivaled. He's preeminent. He's supreme. It says this, he is the fullness of God. The fullness of God. It says it would please the Father to have all the fullness dwell in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means he's the truth. That if you hear from Jesus, you hear from God. If you listen to Jesus, you listen to God. If you know Jesus, you know God. Jesus said this many times. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God. You ever heard the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds? <laughs> By hating Jesus, you hate the one who holds you together. Here's another wild thought. That when the people were crucifying Jesus, they had the strength to do that by what Jesus provides. They crucified him with the strength and the breath that he was providing. Jesus is the truth. It says he's the reconciler of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, which means without Jesus, nothing sinful can be with God or loved by God ever. Ever. Jesus is the way. He's the reconciler of all things. 
So if you're loved by God today, if you have a relationship with God today, of course it's deserving to Jesus. He gets all the credit and the glory for that. He's the way. And then lastly, it says he's the peacemaker. God is a scary being. If you ever read the scriptures, you'll understand that, especially the Old Testament. I'm reading the Old Testament now going, yikes. It's terrifying. He's a terrifying being. And yet Jesus makes peace with God on our, on our behalf by his blood, which means he's the Savior. And I do, I think it's dangerous for human beings to try to find parallels for Jesus Christ. Because every time you try, it dumbs down what he is. The second commandment God ever gave man is don't make any graven image of me and bow down and worship it. Because anything you try to represent me in physical form will fail horribly. Don't try it. Serve me. Serve Christ. Serve what I am in the scripture. Don't make some image and then bow down and serve that thing. That thing is not me. That thing cannot contain me. There is no parallel for Jesus Christ. No true parallel. What's the point? What is the point of Jesus being supreme? What is Paul doing here? Well, he's setting before us what I believe is a motivation. A motivation to do what he already said to the Colossians, what he was always praying for the Colossians, that they go to the summit. That they live fully pleasing to the Lord. But I also list seven other things that I think Paul is doing here for us. Why list and mention the supremacy of Christ? Maybe you're not learning anything new today. Maybe it's just a cool way to lay before us all, all together. But these are the seven things I came up with, which I believe Paul is doing it for this reason. Number one, so we'll know why we were created and by whom. That's important, right? There are scholars all over the world trying to figure out the meaning of life. We just discovered it in one little episode here. The meaning of life is Christ. You were created by him. You were created for him. You exist because of him, and you exist for him. That is the meaning of life. So we'll know why we were created by whom. Second of all, so we will not trifle with him. So we will not trifle with him. He is to be feared and respected. Do not trifle with Christ. If he has all the power and all authority and holds everything together, and he's your savior, and he's the only salvation you get, do not trifle with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not neglect his great salvation. Number two, he is to be feared and respected. Number three, so we will cherish him beyond all others. He loves you more than you can comprehend. And that's an amazing fact, isn't it? Someone so big and supreme and so terrifying loves you more than any of the other loves combined. Jesus loves you more than that. In fact, you could say this. He invented love. Jesus invented love. If you know love, it's because you know Christ, at least a little bit. Because Jesus invented love. And he loves you personally, and he loves me personally above all others it's amazing. Number four, so you will obey him as Lord of all. Obey him. Back in the days, we don't really have this today, but there were kings. Kings, right? And generally, if you have a king, you want to know what the king's edicts are. You don't want to cross the king, right? Even in our day and age, we have this term called treason. That if you commit treason against the United States, it might take your life from you. It's that serious. That if you commit treason against your country, they may take your life. 
Imagine what it would be like to, take, to have treason against the king of kings. It's really important that we obey the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's on his throne. There is no higher, there is no greater, there is no other. Obey him as Lord of all. Number five, we've mentioned this too along the way, so we will trust in him. He has all authority. Nothing is outside his control. He can never lose. Christ can never lose. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. Even when it looks like it happened on the cross, right? Oh, we got him. He's dead. He's done. It's over. No more Christianity. Three days later, rises from the grave, continues the work, sends out the apostles, builds the church. Here we are today. Jesus is still winning. Trust in him. Or better yet, have courage because of him. Go big. Go bold. Go brave. Because if you trust in Jesus Christ and you're doing his will, you can never lose. Ever. Go beyond. Number six which we mentioned already. So you'll take refuge in him from the coming wrath. Because like in the days of Noah, when the coming storm was approaching and no one acted like it was, they were all eating, drinking, giving into marriage, just living their lives. And all of a sudden, this humongous storm comes. The only ones who were saved were the ones inside the ark. Now, the ark is not a good parallel for Jesus, but it's a representation of what we're talking about here. The only ones safe from the coming storm someday, and there is a coming storm called the, God, the wrath of God, the only ones safe are inside Jesus Christ. Everyone else will perish. Everyone. Nobody will be tough on the last day. Picture all the tough guys in Hollywood, right? All the fighters. Chuck Norris. Is he tough anymore? He's probably like 80 years old. Nobody's tough. On the, Lord, on the last day, on Judgment Day. Nobody. Because they're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. So the only way you're safe on Judgment Day is you're his friend, and you're in him, and you're of him. And then lastly, number seven, so you'll live a life worthy of who he is and what he's done for you. And a little while ago, I talked to you about the preciousness of Jesus. And that's the whole point of Paul, what he's doing here. He's trying to lay before them the beauty and the value and the power of Jesus so they will make the obvious conclusion to live a life worthy of what he deserves. I can't compel you to do that. I can't compel anybody to live a life worthy of what Jesus calls, expects. But looking to Jesus can do it. Thinking on these things can do it. You can raise the bar. You can hire the standard and go, wow. He's more than I ever thought he was. He's more valuable. He's more beautiful. He's more precious. He's worthy of more than I'm giving right now. And I think that's the point of Paul's prayer here. Why? Why should I? Why should I? I live for Christ. I'm a Christian. According to the world standards, I'm going the speed of traffic in the Christian circles. Why should I raise the bar? Why should I go higher and greater? Why should I live a life worthy of what Jesus deserves? This is how Paul ends this little paragraph here. Let's look to it again. Verse 21. And you and me, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. Alienated, 
hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's every one of us. That's our resume. Every one of us. That's our resume. And yet, when Christ paid your debt, look what happened. I underline those three things on your sheets. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Now he can present you to God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. It went from the worst case scenario to the best case scenario by Jesus' one sacrifice. That's why. That's why. That's why we should. That's why we can. That's why we have the privilege of doing so. Because without Jesus, where are we today? Without Jesus, what hope do we have today? Without Jesus, how can we stand on Judgment Day before the terrifying God? How can we avoid the coming wrath of God? We can't. But not only will we avoid it, we will be presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Fitting candidates for heaven. Bring them in. This is what I mentioned at the beginning. I believe if we believe that Jesus is supreme, like the way Paul's setting before us, we're going to live a life worthy of what Christ deserves. We will. If we really believe it, I don't mean just academically, we believe these things. We stand upon these things. We will live a life worthy of what Christ deserves. That's the whole point. So the question for all of us today is, how do you love Jesus? How? With what degree do you love Jesus? Do you love him like you love other people? Do you love him like you love your father or your wife or your spouse or your brother or your kids? The title of this lesson today is Supreme Love for a Supreme King. Does Jesus get your love which is superior to all others? Does he get your love which is strongest, most important, and most powerful? Does he get your love which is very great or intense, extreme? That's the point. For supreme love to go to the supreme king, every one of us can go higher and greater because he's worthy of it. Look at those things today. Dwell on those things today. And let us all heighten our view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the mighty and the powerful display set before us today of the Lord Jesus Christ. It feels like we're still scratching the surface, and of course we are. But I thank you for this description of Jesus, that even if we think we know him, like some think they know space and some think they know the ocean, it's way more vast than we could ever comprehend. And yet, Father, you want us to know it. You want us to deepen our understanding of Christ so that we can deepen our love for Christ, our devotion to Christ, because he's worthy of it. And someday we'll understand that. We'll have full understanding. Yes, Jesus, you're worthy of everything. But today, Father, the prayer is and the hope is is that we all go greater and higher in our love and our devotion to Jesus. Because he is the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things, and he is the purpose for all things. Thank you for the great salvation we've received in Christ. And if there's some here today who have not tasted of his salvation, draw them unto yourself. Let them taste of your goodness for the first time today. 
and experience the great salvation that you offer. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.